God, thank you. Thank you so much that you take hardened, packed soil full of weeds and rocks and you you soften us and you till us and you weed us and break that soil so that it's soft and ready for seeds to be planted and you water us and you care for us and God that you make us new new creatures help us to realize that and help us to realize that it's you that does that God thank you for this time of uh, just singing thanks for music thank you for the language that it is and that it speaks God just be with Michael now as he uh, brings the word, your word, that it would uh, sink into that soil and um, there would be wonderful fruit that comes from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pav. Again, good morning and welcome. Uh, it's good to see each and every one of you this morning. This is free. This This is... Uh, this is extra. This is bonus this morning. Just reminded as we were singing and as we were praying together and as some uh, of you were sharing scripture, um, was reminded of this verse, a couple of verses actually, one from Psalm 122 and one from Psalm 133 that I just want to share with you and just let it soak in. Uh, David writes in 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And then uh, a couple of pages over, David also writes these words. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robe. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life Forever. We are uh, finishing the doctrinal section, maybe you would say, the theological section, the, the main idea of, of Paul's letter to Colossians this morning. There's some more verses, not that those aren't theological, not that those aren't doctrinal, um, but he finishes the letter with some final greetings to some people mentioning lots of names. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, and next week, I would, I would highly encourage you uh, to be here as we are going to wrap up Colossians, uh, talking about uh, two, maybe three of those names in particular, but then giving you a chance to specifically respond to this book as a whole, or maybe part of what uh, has impressed you or touched you or spoken to you over the last several months. Um, I will send out an email this week and kind of flesh that out. But we're going to, um, as a group and as individuals, uh, raise up some miniature Ebenezer stones to some things that God has taught us. There is an outline in the bulletin. Thanks, Linda. If you need one, please raise your hand and she'll give you one. As we look at just two verses this morning, I know a couple weeks ago that I said that we would look at all these last week, but just wanted to focus on prayer. This morning we're going to look at... Um, what it means for us to walk in wisdom. 
what it means for us to walk in wisdom. Uh, Jesus, you know, he really had just one message. (laughs) He talked to lots of different people, and that message came across lots of different ways. He used lots of different words and lots of different means, but his message was basically the same. The message was what he started out with, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that looked a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. To the woman at the well, it looked like reminding her of her situation and how it really didn't line up, even with her view of who God was, which was different than the Jewish view. To Nicodemus, he focused on some allusions to the Old Testament to remind him that even as a teacher of Israel, he was missing something vitally important from God's Word. To the crowd that had gathered on the seashore to be fed, as they, in their minds, were imagining that passage in the Old Testament where God told Moses, I will raise up a prophet like you, as they had been miraculously fed like Moses miraculously fed them. He talked about what their really their inner desire was, and it wasn't for a prophet, it was for a free lunch. And then he showed them that something greater than Moses was there. The kingdom of heaven had arrived. On and on and on and on that went with different people, different individuals. The message was the same. God has shown up and he desires you to turn his face, turn your face toward him. But with each individual person, he met their need. Think of the rich young ruler who thought he had all his boxes checked. (laughs) And Jesus showed him that while he may have been following the law on the outside, on the inside there was greed and covetousness that he wasn't willing to let go of. And that's how Paul ends his letter to the Colossians, so to speak. He reminds them that the message is the same, but we interact with individuals. We interact with real human beings. We can't just have a cookie-cutter message and say, here it is, and whoever we come across, we, we pull out our track, nothing wrong with tracks necessarily. But if we deal with every single person the same way, we've missed the beauty of the life of Christ who loved individuals, who loved people. And so this morning we, we look at just two verses from chapter 4 in Colossians, verses 5 and 6. So would you read with me, and then we will talk about this together. Paul writes, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for um, your grace and your love. And I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to um, what you have for us this morning. And that ultimately through your spirit, you would change us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are watching your watch, there's no way in the world to be done by 10. So that's okay with me. So it has to be okay with you. Oh, well, not be done by 11 either. Certainly not a 10, but not by 11 either.
but that's okay. I have enjoyed our time together so far this morning. Um, our goal, the last imperative, the last command before he gets to just the, the long list of names, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. What does he mean by outsiders? It's a word that the Jews used for those who were non-Jewish. And it's a word used in the New Testament by Paul several times to refer to non-believers. What's interesting, though, is in all the places that Paul uses that here, in 1 Corinthians 5, in 1 Thessalonians 4, in 1 Timothy 3, you can just work your way through Corinthians, Thessalonians, Timothy 5, 4, 3. You can go look those up and read those passages. What he's, what he's concerned about in terms of outsiders is not their behavior, but our behavior toward them. Whenever he uses that term, it's not derogatory, it's not unkind, it's how are you behaving? How is your life lining up? What are you doing as you relate to those who are non-believers? It's a fascinating idea that, that Paul desires for us to honor God before those who don't know Him. That is ultimately our goal. That's ultimately our purpose in life is to bring God glory. And we do that when we don't defame His name around those who are not believers. They may not like what we believe in. They may ridicule us for being foolish and simple-minded and bigoted and all the other words that are used. But they should never be able to point a finger and say, your behavior doesn't line up with the character of God. You're a lie, you steal, you cheat. You're unkind, you're unloving. Now, they may define love differently than we do, and that's okay. But our behavior towards outsiders should always be of the highest quality, the highest character. And then Paul gives us four characteristics of what that looks like. He says that when we walk in wisdom, what that means is, is walking in wisdom redeems the time. It's always with grace or in grace. Walking in wisdom means that we are seasoned or that we season things with salt and that we're concerned about individuals. So look at, let's look at those four things. This morning in verse 5, at the end, says, making the most of the opportunity. Um, another way it's, it's phrased in some versions is redeem the time. It's a word that comes from the marketplace. It's seeing a bargain and not letting it pass by. It'd be like if I went to Walmart or Ingalls and went down the frozen food section and Bluebell was on sale for $2. There is no way I'm not bringing some of that home, right? And that's what Paul's talking about. When you're relating to outsiders, you make the most of every opportunity you have. Are you thinking about those things when you are out in the world and, you, and you're talking to outsiders, those who are not believers? Are you redeeming the time? Are you thinking, what can I say, what can I do to enter into conversation, to enter into a relationship maybe, to have an opportunity to bring up the wonder and the glory of Christ? That's what he means by making the most of our time. Or do we go through life with our own agenda, our own plans, and, and people are distractions or interruptions to my agenda? 
Or do we think about those times when people may be distractions or interruptions as divine appointments, as God bringing people into my life for an opportunity for me to display His wonder and His love and His grace? I think it's, it's us acting purposeful. We take every chance that's given to us. And it's us acting intentional. Do we begin our day praying and thanking, God, who are you going to bring across my path and what am I going to say? Will you give me words to say? It's, it's what Paul prayed in the verse before that. God, open doors and give me the right words to say. Do we begin our day that way? Intentional. Are there something you have for me today as I relate to non-believers? And are we purposeful? Are we taking advantage of those when they show up? Because if we pray that they do, mightn't we ought to expect that God would answer that prayer? We shouldn't be surprised when He brings someone across our path. We might be surprised at who He brings across our path. We might not particularly think that was the right one. God, could you bring me someone who may be a little easier, a little less rough around the edges? But we shouldn't be surprised if He answers that sincere prayer. Second characteristic is that our speech is in grace or by grace or with grace. Lots of ways you can translate that phrase. What does grace mean? Grace means unmerited favor. And so when we're dealing with non-believers, do we treat them with favor? Do we expect them to conform to something before willing to engage them? Do we expect them to treat us a certain way before we're willing to engage them? But Paul says that our speech is in grace or with grace. In other words, regardless of of what they've said to us or how they've treated us, are we willing to treat them the way that Christ treated us? That needs to sink in a little bit this morning. Because there's not anybody out there who in the grand scheme of things is any worse than you and I were before Christ changed our hearts. We were all an offense, a stench in the nostrils of God Almighty. Now you may say, well, I wasn't as bad as that person. Well, it may have looked different, but stench is stench. Sin is sin. Offending the God of the universe is offending the God of the universe. That's why we all need the blood of Christ. There's not any other way to get into His presence. Maybe you came to Christ when you were five or six and you hadn't done that many bad things yet. You still needed Christ. While we say cute, sweet, little, innocent babies, there's really no such thing. Right? How many cute, sweet, innocent babies at 3 o'clock in the morning have thought, Mom's tired, I'm going to let her sleep. No, they, they come out of the womb selfish. Feed me, change me, hold me. And as they grow, that selfishness doesn't just focus on the people around them. It's, they create their own God, which is themselves. We're all idolaters. And God showed us grace. He gave us favor. And so can't we do that? 
for non-believers, no matter how offended we might be by their actions. Our speech should be with grace, kindness. Even if they ridicule us, even if they mock us, even if they demean us, because isn't that what Christ did? While being reviled, he did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to his Father. So our, our words are graceful. And then in the middle of verse 6, seasoned with salt. Um, this isn't the idea of preserving something. This is the idea of, of really seasoning something. It's a word that means adding salt. And why do we add salt to food? Well, it adds flavor to it. It brings out the flavor that's already there. And if you and I are the salt of the earth, which Jesus says in Matthew 5 that we are, shouldn't our words be flavorful? Shouldn't they, be, shouldn't they add spice and joy and a little bit of zest to life? You know, sometimes Christians can be the most melancholy and sober and stuck-in-the-muddish type people that you meet. We should be the most joyful and the most loving and the most exuberant. Right? Didn't Jesus tell the woman at the well that there would be a spring of water bubbling up to eternal life? Shouldn't we be oozing eternal life? in our words, and our actions. Now, Paul says in other places that that aroma of heaven sometimes turns people off. There are people that so love their sin that that, that aroma of eternal life, they're not going to like that. That's okay. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't exude that. It shouldn't be seeping from our pores joy and peace and confidence and hope that we sang about earlier. As we interact with the world, they should look at us and just kind of scratch their head and go, this world's a mess. What is up with you? And what's sad is when non-believers are more joyful than we are, when they have more peace than we do. Not that they can't have that, but we certainly shouldn't be outpaced by someone who doesn't know true joy and true peace, and ultimately true salvation. Billy Joel came out with a song in the 70s, and one of the lines is, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because the sinners have much more fun. Is that true? He thought it was, <laughs> apparently, Either, the, either he didn't have a good idea of what Christians were like or he knew the wrong ones. May it never be said of people that know us that they would say sinners have much more fun. My prayer is that that would not be a description of friends of ours. But they would go, yeah, I know some Christians who are stuck in the mud, but I do know some people that are different. The fourth characteristic is really a result, but it also highlights a fourth thing that's true about this. Into verse 6, so that you will, so that, we do all these things so that you will know how you should respond to each person. But in that is the fourth characteristic. 
we have a response to each person. That's a, it's a very interesting way of phrasing that that brings out the idea that you know how to respond to each individual person. People that we meet are not cookie cutters. They're, they're people with backgrounds and real lives and real hurts and real ways that they have made themselves God. And those are all different. Ultimately, they've done that. Ultimately, they've set themselves up on the throne. But their background, where they came from, why they do what they do, it's all different. And we have to get to know people. We have to walk in their shoes, so to speak. Because the goal is, just like Jesus' goal, is to show them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time is short. We do need to redeem the time. Right? It's not just about, oh, I'm going to love and show kindness and, and favor. You actually have to get to the gospel at some point. Hopefully that point is sooner than later. Right? Right? There's two sides to that coin. And, and Christians have, have gone to the extreme on both sides. There's, there's the people who say, well, we've got to preach the truth. And they don't have any love, and we call those people Bible thumpers, right? It's always about hell and sin, and, and we never get to know anybody. It's just, if you don't repent, you're going to hell. Well, that's true, but there's got to be love. But then we can go to the other extreme and say, Jesus loves you, and we can just be kind to people and love them and give them things and, and never, ever get to the issue of the problem is there's sin that has to be dealt with. God loves you and it's going to be okay. God does love them, but it's not going to be okay if they don't know that there's a if they don't know that they have sin, there's a solution for their sin, and they need to turn and embrace that solution. Right? There's, there's a lot of ways to say it, but that's the gospel, right? People have to recognize that they have sin. They have to recognize and understand that there is a solution for that sin. And His name is Jesus. And they've got to turn and, and embrace that. Jesus called that repentance. Sometimes that has a bad connotation in our culture. However you want to phrase that, we've, I've talked about the idea of changing allegiance, taking myself off the throne and putting God on the throne. But that looks different for every person we encounter. And that requires us being willing to enter into not just four spiritual laws, say a prayer, thanks, have a nice day, requires us to build relationships, requires us to... Sometimes you don't have a chance to. Sometimes it's a chance meeting, and, and that's fine. God gives us those opportunities. That happens. But day in and day out, are we seeking to build relationships with people that they might see eternal life bubbling up out of us? It's the same thing we read earlier in First Peter chapter 3. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. They'll ask. They'll question. They'll present a statement that needs a Christian response. Anything from, what do I do? I don't love my wife anymore. To, who do I vote for? To, why are you so happy? To, have you stayed together all this time? Or why are your kids behaving the way they do? Why do they mind you? Um, 
Why do you not badmouth your boss? I hate life. I'm sad. All of those things, whether they're questions or whether they're statements, they require or ask or are begging for a Christian response, a biblical response. And we have to be ready and willing to do that. But if we remember what Peter said, but right before he said, always be ready to give an, a defense, he said, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Our wit, the foundation of our witness is our character. It goes back to what we talked about at the beginning and what Peter said. If we're not walking the walk and talking the talk, it really doesn't matter what we say. A blameless life lays the foundation for a proper Christian witness, as N.T. Wright says. And so what Paul has done is finally come full circle. He began this book talking about the Colossians and a guy named Epaphras who had entered into their life and shared the gospel with them and now they were bearing fruit. And he was thankful for that, that Epaphras was faithful and was a minister to them. And now he's asking them to do the same thing. This whole book has been talking about the gospel. You got it. Here's what it is. <clears throat> Here's how you live it out in your marriage, with your family, with the body of believers. But there's one last thing. <clears throat> Are you going to let it stop with you? Or are you going to allow it to keep going? Like Epaphras didn't let it stop with him, but he ministered to the Colossians. Are you going to let it stop with you? Or are you going to seek opportunities with people who don't know Christ to reveal the wonder and the glory and the majesty of this Creator God who loved the church enough to die for her? And so Paul has come full circle. And so... That leaves the question in, in our lap as well. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with the truth that we've been studying for the last two or three months? And so your assignment this week is to think about that. I would go through and read through this book again, maybe two or three times. What is it in here specifically? Do you need to take a stand on and, as <clears throat> we talked about, raise up a stone of remembrance. Several times the Israelites did that. We talked about Jacob doing that when he was leaving the promised land, running for his life from his brother. He, he set up a stone because God appeared to him and said, I'm going to bring you back. And he, he set up a pillar and worshipped and said, when I come back, I'm going to worship here again. This is going to be a reminder of your faithfulness, God. When the Israelites... <laughs> eventually came back after being enslaved for 400 years and they crossed the Jordan. When the ark was still there, Moses told the people to go out in the middle and get 12 stones, one for each tribe. Set them up. A reminder of what I have done. So that when your kids ask, Dad, what is that pile of stones over there? You can tell them, oh, this was when... God brought us into the land that He promised to give us 430 years earlier 
to our great-great-grandfather Abraham. And so next week we are going to make a stone. I don't know what yours needs to be, but it needs to be something that you need to be reminded of from the book of Colossians. What has God taught you? What has God challenged you in? What has God said you need to change or you need to remember? Maybe because of some, maybe because of some doubt or some frustration or some struggle you have, you need to remember some truth that God has told us from this book. Maybe because of some sin, you need to change according to something God has told you from this book. No one else has to necessarily know that, but we're going to make our own stone next week. And so this week, as you read through Colossians 1 or 2 or 3 or 4, maybe once every day, you need to come prepared next week as we talk about just a couple of more things to do that, to set up a stone. So that when you look at it, you're reminded of God's faithfulness and His goodness and His grace and His mercy. Because heaven forbid that we, we finish and say, okay, good, got that done, now what's next? And we don't let this change us, make us different, make us new, as we say. That's what God is in the business of doing. He's in the business of taking junk and transforming it into a treasure. And that's my desire and my prayer for each of us. Not just that you'd be different, but that God would be glorified and that you would have an opportunity to kind of exude eternal life for someone else. That the message of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ wouldn't stop with you, but would move on. The church would continue to grow and build and prosper. And that our communities that we live in would be different. Because we actually believed what God said. And we took it to heart and we said, I want to honor my Maker. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we, we do praise You and we thank You for this morning. And we ask that You would change us. God, I pray for each one of us here, young and old, that we would spend time this week thinking about the message that You have given to us through your servant Paul. It was faithfully passed down from generation to generation to generation. And I pray that through your Spirit you would point out that one place, that one thing where we need to change or to be different or be reminded about something about your goodness. So that when we gather next week we can celebrate together that you're doing something in our midst. And I thank you for these brothers and sisters, the encouragement that they are to me. But we praise you and we give you honor and glory that you have given us your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May he be glorified in all that we say and do this week. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.